I just slipped through an exam and you're listening to a Radio 1 91 FM podcast. It's history time. Come on, tell your friends. We'll visit New Zealand's ancient lands with Jamie the host and Dr. Valetta Gillibut the historian. Our fun will never end because it's history time. All right. It's a Thursday morning, so it must be time for history time. And I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Gillibert. Good morning. Good morning, Jamie. How are we today? Oh, not doing too bad. Not doing too bad? Oh, that's good. That's Mm -hmm. good. Hey, we had some uh, referendums. Yes. Um, yes. Just a couple of of weeks ago, the results came through uh, last week. And two results. One, uh, End of Life Choice Act passed. Cannabis legalisation didn't. And we have a long and checkered history of substance referendums, <laughs> if, uh, if we want to put it in any way, in Aotearoa, uh, with alcohol going to the ballot countless times, countless times in, in, in our history, um, starting back in 1893. Uh, but could we have a little at it a little bit before then, the, the no licensing era? Well, the no licensing era was um, quite a messy one, we might say, um, in a lot of ways, certainly um, enough to bring about New Zealand's largest public political movement ever, which was the Prohibition Movement, or Temperance mm. and Prohibition. Folks weren't happy about the amount of alcohol that was being consumed and um, the way in which it was perhaps being consumed, lots of social harms, lots of uh, bad health outcomes, and uh, not as many people getting to work as they should have been. So, yeah, um, that was uh, just no very few controls on liquor at all. So with the temperance and prohibition movement gaining a lot of steam, the first thing they sought to do was restrict the sale of alcohol. Yeah, so it wasn't full on, right, we can't have it anymore. It's like, let's slow it down ease it down and work our way through it, was it? Yeah, I mean, there were, there were a few divisions within the Prohibition camp. Some people uh, supported temperance, so uh, self-control on the part of the consumer, yeah. and um, more controls over the sale of liquor, so less, uh, less temperate folks would have more difficulty accessing liquor. Um, but by and large, control was a step towards Prohibition. Ideally, most Prohibition supporters just wanted a blanket ban across New Zealand, no booze. Okay, so so the temperance movement, the Christian women's temperance movement, was that not for full prohibition originally? Originally it was, but it was joined together with other forces who uh, put forward more moderate claims, either to get the view of prohibition uh, normalised and accepted, or that was where they wanted to stop. By and large, however, they supported national prohibition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and there were a lot of groups, wasn't there? Mm-hmm. Um, you had groups like um, Bands of Hope, yes, which was a pres- Presbyterian movement. Mm-hmm. Um, the New Zealand Alliance, yes, uh, who had um, their president William Fox. So William Fox was um, New Zealand's second premier, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm. So a very powerful political lobby, the New Zealand Alliance, especially. Yeah. You also had the the smaller kind of denominational efforts. People, um, you know, singing temperance songs, taking pledges to. Um, to cease drinking liquor. In the case of ladies, it was lips that touch liquor shall not touch mine. <laughs> so there were uh, the, the kind of social efforts to um, shore up the prohibition cause, but certainly the alliance was one of the most um, kind of significant political players. Yeah, it almost got evangelical. Right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the fact that, you know, evangelical Christianity um, had a huge hand in uh, shaping the logic of the movement, um, their perception of alcohol as encouraging sin then, yeah, they were close bedfellows, absolutely, and they did a lot of um, very strong campaigning. Uh, so in 1893, Premier Richard Seddon, a.k.a. King Dick, mm-hmm. 
who uh, he inherited the bill for women's suffrage. He introduced the old age pension as well as bringing in the Alcoholic Liquors Sales Control Act. What was that? Well, this was a big win for the temperance and prohibition movement, essentially. More, more so, the, well, controlling liquor, the, the temperates have won. The prohibitionists haven't quite won, but they're getting some way there. Um, so this provision to control the sale of liquor was based on local electorates. Yeah. Essentially, every election year, folks would vote on whether they wanted their electorate to have uncontrolled liquor sale, controlled liquor sale, or a complete ban of liquor sales. So that was referred to as going dry. Um, and so for uh, a good two decades or so, folks were voting on whether or not their electorates would go dry, as mm-hmm. well as voting on their local representatives. And so um, quite often, well, these issues just inevitably got uh, entangled. And you would know a candidate whether or not they were a prohibitionist or for control or for zero control before you'd essentially know anything about their policies mm-hmm. because it was um, such a prominent and um, kind of contentious issue that, yeah, prohibition, the uh, politician's stance on prohibition was one of the most prominent things about them because of this. I mean, and so really for those f- first few, you really had no hope of winning uh, unless you were continuance, right? Because you're splitting the vote over reduction or no licence. Yeah, yeah, and... Um, in fact, to go dry, an electorate needed uh, to gain a three-fifths majority yeah. to kind of nominate this. So, um, yeah, it was tricky to get it there. But um, equally, once an electorate did go dry, it needed a three-fifths majority to reverse the decision. Oh. And so quite often, electorates that went dry stayed that way for, um, for, for quite a long time because the anti-prohibition or the um, anti-temperance movement really wasn't as well organised. Yeah, as yeah. the prohibition movement. So once the vote went through, it was very difficult to reverse. Yeah, and who who was on each side? Well, we've talked about the temperance movement mm-hmm. and, and, and things like that. Who was on that side? But what about the ones that were campaigning, campaigning for continuance? What what were they saying? What were the arguments for? Well, there there were um, plenty. Uh, so primarily, there were well, I suppose um, most prominently, there were a lot of business owners, um, industrialists. Folks who were working in the upper echelons of economy and um, who saw, you know, that the liquor trade was a great boon for New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Um, We collected taxes from it, um, a lot of uh, sales, a lot of kind of commerce um, surrounding the liquor industry. And um, so folks kind of in high levels of business, yes, also a lot of working class folk, especially men, and um, just more widely from Episcopalian churches, such as the Catholic Church. There were, of course, a lot of working-class Catholics, and beyond that, a lot of Catholics felt um, it was a kind of a, a Protestant jab at um, their their rites and rituals, because, of course, we know that um, wine is involved in the Holy Sacrament mm-hmm, for Catholics. Mm-hmm. So um, there were um, folks who felt that um, the Protestant Christian majority was trying to oppress their, their religious beliefs, Others that felt um, that evangelical Christians were trying to interfere with working men's pleasures, trying to oh. control behaviour and trying to kind of impose a uh, kind of puritanical way of life upon everybody. So no booze, no gambling, no fun, no races, um, none of that merriment. Uh, there was this feeling among non-evangelical New Zealanders that a whole lot of folk were trying to control um, their behaviours and their decisions in a kind of undue manner. 
When we get to national, the national level, because we're looking at it in a local context at the mm-hmm. moment, when did the national prohibition arguments start coming? Well, um, they were there from the start, but they really gained a lot of traction in the early 20th century. We had our first national prohibition vote in 1911, mm-hmm. actually. Um, and there were some conditions. We, had a, uh, we needed a 60% majority to bring in national prohibition. And by golly, we got close. We 50, 55.8% majority. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. very impressive, but um, not quite enough. Now, one that a lot of people were talking about is the referendum in 1918 at the moment mm-hmm. because there are some similarities between the cannabis one at the moment mm. where we're sitting and the uh, Prohibition one because at the point, originally Prohibition had won that, mm-hmm. uh, but then came the troops. Yes. Yeah, literally, the troops <laughs> came in um, post-World War One. They come back. They've lived a horrid life uh, over overseas fighting for king and country. And by golly, they wanted their drink when they got home. They sure did. And, uh, you know, beyond um, whatever else, it's quite interesting because the New Zealand Alliance and a lot of those other groups focused really heavily on troops. Yeah. The pamphlets, um, they did public lectures and tours and really uh, tried to get the boys on side with the fact that um, drinking, becoming drunk was unmasculine, embarrassing, um, unchristian. They, they threw as much at them as they could. But in the end, 40,000 uh, votes from returning troops or troops who were still based overseas were counted. And that tipped the margin against prohibition. Special votes. Quite right. Yes, they were special votes. <laughs> yeah, and, and then from, from those times, things kind of started to change anyway. Um, why? A number of reasons. Uh, I think most broadly, um, the prohibitionists, or at least um, you know, temperance and prohibition as a cause as a whole, um, had won an ideological battle most folks felt um, that free and unfettered sale of uh, liquor and heavy consumption of liquor was a bad thing for families and a bad thing for the nation. And this was after decades and decades and decades of campaigning. Um, Time and place was another. We uh, were recovering from uh, our first experience of global warfare. Uh National efficiency was the word on everybody's lips. Uh Um, And so... Not only did we want uh, happy and healthy homes, but we wanted um, productive and um, temperate workers. You know, um, gentlemen going to work and uh, doing a good job. Of course, there was also uh, eugenics having its heyday at the time too. Ah, And so um, the feeling that uh, drunks would not be able to produce healthy national stock, strong fighting fit men who would be able to fight for king and country in the future. So all of this logic really kind of combined into something of a compromise, uh, that sneaky six o'clock closing measure yeah. that was initially uh, temporary just for wartime, extended indefinitely. And um, beyond that, we continued having licensing polls and national prohibition referenda. Um, but the, that was entrenched in law. They had to have it. They sure did. They sure did. Um, and the, the support fluctuated um, initially, but eventually uh, declined, though it was still quite a long time before uh, we ended 6pm closing and even longer before um, dry electorates went quote-unquote wet again. Yes, up until what we've talked before about um, 
1999 when the last one uh, up in Auckland became wet. Yeah. Uh, and American Prohibition, that that, uh, that started to weigh in as well, right, in the, in the 1920s and 30s, around the same time as the Great Depression, I guess. Uh-huh, it truly did, yeah. Um, prohibitionists in New Zealand celebrated uh, the American Prohibition era. Mm-hmm. Um, they felt that they had gone a step further than New Zealanders were willing to go, and they were looking forward... Uh, to seeing the benefits of prohibition and um, to having uh, New Zealanders witness these benefits and follow along. But unfortunately, it didn't quite come to work out that way. No. Now, uh, alcohol is just one drug. New Zealand has a rich history uh, when it comes to drug use uh, and drug control, right? Yeah, quite right. Very rich and um, not very well known, so that could change. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, um, Colonial times, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't have a fully operating state apparatus. We didn't um, have a lot of the um, institutional checks and balances that we do today. And so, of course, on the frontier, um, which was somewhat lawless, there was very ready access to intoxicating substances. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we've already talked about uh, how... Uh, liquors were especially strong in colonial times because of transporting issues. Of course, it is more efficient to transport um, a barrel of whiskey or rum than it is to transport a cask of wine and value for money too. So beyond um, having intoxicating liquors, uh, colonial folk had ready access to both opium uh, and cannabis as well as cocaine. Mm, Where did the cocaine come from? That's a really good question, Jamie. I would not know. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, as for opium... um, Commonly, it did come from China. Yeah, uh, of course. And along with uh, Chinese migrants who were looking to work the gold fields. I mean, if you look at the gold fields now, there's still poppy growing mm. everywhere. Yes, and still the odd opium pipe in secondhand shops around uh, rural New Zealand. So that's great fun. But yeah, um, naturally, <laughs> it being the drug of choice of an ethnic minority, um, yep. it was the first or among the first to come under state control. Yes, that's right. That's right. But interestingly enough, opium and it did, but its offshoot became quite popular. Well, yes. Because from opium, you get derivatives such as heroin. Quite right. Quite right. And um, that was still sold as a kind of prescribed medicine mm-hmm. um, for, you know, it's relaxing and uh, mollying effects. So actually um, use of heroin, um, prescriptions of heroin got so widespread that by the late 1940s, New Zealand had uh, among the highest rates of heroin use in the world. Mm-hmm. All perfectly legal. Yes, perfectly legal. Uh, and we still have some of the highest rates of illegal heroin use in, in the world as well. Uh, I think Christchurch for a long time, if not still, has the highest per capita use of heroin uh, of anywhere. Dear Lord, that's no good. <laughs> well, um, um, uh, certainly nationwide, we reduced it um, by the next decade, mid-50s, drastically reduced, and we had uh, things like Valium come in. Yeah. And once again, again, we're taking the American lead when it comes to prohibition on, on drugs. Oh, yes. Aren't we? Absolutely. Um, looking worldwide, but very, very um, significantly taking inspiration from American medicine, American policing um, and American state controls of whichever substance. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we also um, had, by the way, marijuana cigarettes. Yes. In uh, colonial times, they were advertised as uh, kind of medicin- medicinal uh, treatments for asthma mm-hmm. and for insomnia as well. You could find them advertised in colonial newspapers. Because it makes you sleepy. 
Yes. <laughs> not sure about the respiratory benefits, but yes. um, certainly relaxing. I'm surprised they didn't use opium for that cause as well. Um, I don't know if you've ever been below the octagon, but there's still a few, the old opium dens are down there. So with the curtains up, I've been down there. Wow, It's amazing. Oh, underground Dunedin drug tour. Sounds like fun. Maybe we should start that up. It'd be amazing. Um, right, so what are the parallels between the you know arguments we're having now for the cannabis debate and the arguments we've had in the past? In terms of uh, liquor? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the prohibition example, um, the way things went in America was definitely something that swayed the vote here. Uh, presumably, if liquor became illegal nationwide, there would be no opportunity for... Um, or less opportunity for criminal activity and also mm-hmm. for circumventing the law, say with um, dry electorates, um, they were too limited. And so bars would just open up on the borders of the yeah, electorates yeah, yeah. or folks would buy it and take it in. So they wanted a um, more kind of hardline and widespread uh, solution to the problem, which they felt America had found in just prohibiting it nationally. Um, and... Well, the assumption of national prohibition was that folk would follow the law, by and large. Uh, But this wasn't the case. So more people ended up in prison. Mm -hmm. More money went to organised crime. Mm -hmm. And folks were still getting drunk. And in fact, uh, in a more dangerous way than than prior when it was legal. Folks were uh, drinking adulterated liquor, drinking too much of it. Um, and just doing so out of sight in a way that made the social harms of liquor a lot worse. Yeah, so an unregulated market is far worse um, for a populace than a regulated one. Yes, yeah. whether or not... Is that what history is telling us? It seems like history may be, uh, may be hinting something here. Uh, yeah. You know, we've got an open book in front of us, so to speak. Uh, yeah. I thought history never repeated, but I guess it does. <laughs> We're hoping not to fail the open book exam a second time. <laughs> no, no. Well, 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 we'll have to see and see if the, the troops will come back home uh, and set the referenda in its right place, uh, which we find out uh, just this Friday. Looking forward to it, Jamie. All right. Hey, well, thank you for joining me this morning. Kia ora. It's been great. Pleasure as always. And we'll talk again soon. Lovely. That was a Radio 1 91 FM podcast. But find more at r1.co.nz.